0: Welcome to the New Books and Political Science podcast. My name is Heath Brown, and today I'll be talking to the author of The Government Citizen Disconnect. The book is written by Suzanne Mettler and published this year by the Russell Sage Foundation Press. I have the real pleasure to have Suzanne Mettler with me today on the phone. Suzanne, how are you doing?
1: I'm doing great. Thanks so much for having me.
0: Absolutely. Uh, you are the Clinton Rosader Professor of American Institutions in the Government Department at Cornell University. In addition to that, you've written a lot of books in the past. Would you just sort of refresh us a little bit about, uh, about uh, where you are now and, and maybe, you know, what you work on? And, and then we'll talk about your super interesting book.
1: Great. Thank you. Well, I'm very interested in Americans' experiences of government generally and public policies in particular. I'm interested in the messages that people take away from the public policies they use and what that tells them about their role as citizens, their rights, their obligations, and about whether government cares about them or not, or includes them, that kind of thing. And I've studied that through a few different um types of policies, and written a few books on it. Um, One of my books was about the GI Bill and the experience of World War II veterans that was called Soldiers to Citizens. And in that, I found that people had a very positive experience of government, and it led them to participate more in politics because they felt more fully included as citizens. And that led me to look at the contemporary period because I was curious about is that happening today through public policies? And so that really led me to um, to write my present book, *The Government-Citizen Disconnect*, and a previous book, *The Submerged State*.
0: Yeah, the 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 uh, your previous books, which I have uh, personally cited just so many times, uh, set up this this current book, *The The Government-Citizen Disconnect*, in in a. Uh, a significant way. And, and let's start our conversation with the central premise of the book, which is also the title, which is this phrase, uh, the government-citizen disconnect. Would you explain yeah, briefly what you mean by this phrase and what is disconnected exactly?
1: Well, there are two trends going on these days that I find really interesting and in combination, they're very paradoxical. So one is that over the past several decades, Americans have come to increasingly dislike and distrust government and to feel disconnected from government on all sorts of measures, survey questions that we ask over time. Uh, People don't like government much today. Um, At the same time, Americans depend on government more than ever for... Uh, all kinds of help with affording education and health care and for economic security. So people rely more on federal social policies than they ever have before. And so that's a puzzle to me. How can these two things go together? There's this growing gulf between the role that government actually plays in people's lives and their overall assessment of it
0: and you have so many interesting examples in addition to the, the deep analysis, but, um, so many examples of this, this paradox. Um, and for example, uh, you write about in 2016, uh, Donald Trump ran on the promise to repeal Obamacare, yet he won four States that had recently expanded Medicaid under, uh, the ACA Obamacare. um, what, what makes this a good illustration of the thesis of your book? What, what does this tell us about uh, the way people are experiencing uh, uh, government and social policy and the way they're expressing political views?
1: Great question. And let me just clarify, it was there were six states that in 2012 went for Obama that flipped uh parties going for Trump in 2016. And of those six, four of them had uh, adopted expanded Medicaid under the Affordable Care Act. Right. So this is really puzzling because one of the things that Trump ran on was uh, what Republicans had been saying since 2010, and that was that they wanted to repeal the Affordable Care Act. And so he was promising to repeal it. Um, and so this is really paradoxical that these states where so many people had come to rely upon these new benefits, that they're voting for a candidate, um, that, or at least their state was going for a candidate that was promising to do away with them.
0: And this is, this is more than just a sort of anecdotally, uh, paradoxical. It it also, from a theoretical standpoint is, is confusing, um, you summarize the theory of policy feedback in the book and how the expectations of this theory have not been met in many cases of late, uh, sort of what you described at the beginning. I wonder if you could recount some of the, the very basic outlines of that theory and, and what has failed to materialize for some citizens.
1: Yeah, that's a great question, and it, it really focuses things very nicely So policy feedback is this concept that has evolved since the early 1990s, at least it's it's been called that since the early 1990s. And what it means is that policies, once they're created, can have political effects beyond whatever their primary purposes are, which are usually social or economic or environmental or what have you. They also can reshape politics because um, they can change the goals that citizens have. They can change who participates in politics. Um, They can make citizens want to get mobilized in order to protect those policies um, or to to mobilize against them and so on. Um, And so when it comes to social policies, um, what we know generally and I found is that People are very supportive of most social policies that they've utilized. They they have appreciated being able to use them and they want us to support them. But what I was looking at in this book was a little broader than that. And that is um, people's attitudes about government generally. And so if you've used several social policies, I was interested interested in how does that affect your view of government? Um, And what I found was that there was not much of a relationship, generally speaking, um, that um, that people can be very anti-government, even if they've used several social policies.
0: And that extent of involvement in social policies is, is one of the real uh, contributions of the data collection that you do in the book. And you collect, You've collect you collected a lot of data and analyzed it in a number of the chapters, um, specifically uh, about social policy. And the extent to which uh, people actually use social policies. I wonder if you'd explain what you found in chapter three about what people told you about their involvement with a, a variety of government social policies, including those that are that are quite visible and also the ones that you call submerged.
1: Great. Yes. Chapter three is called We Are All Beneficiaries Now. And that really sums up a major finding of my research. So uh, one of the data sets that I used in the book and in this chapter is uh, one that I collected myself through doing a survey. And in that survey, I asked people about 21 different federal social policies and if they had ever used that particular policy, yes or no. And then if they had used it, I asked all sorts of follow-up questions. Um, And this kind of data is surprisingly rare. Um, There's uh, no other study that's asked those questions of that many policies. And I included um, in it not only direct visible policies, things like unemployment insurance and food stamps and social security. But also I included the policies uh, that I call submerged because while they are social policies with the same purposes of as the ones I just mentioned, they're channeled through the tax code. They allow people to keep more money rather than sending them a check. And so from an accounting perspective, it's a wash, but the design is different. And that often makes governments role less visible to people. So these are the policies in what I call the submerged state. So I was able to add up for individuals how many policies they had ever experienced in their lifetime and categorize them in all these different ways. And what I found in a nutshell is that all Americans um, have used social policies, actually 96% of people had used at least one in their lifetime. The other 4% tend to be young people who simply haven't aged into that experience yet. And the average person has experienced five policies. Um, the types of policies people have used vary somewhat depending upon their income level, um, for example, and their age group and various other demographic kinds of differences. but. People overall have used the same number of policies. So, for example, if you compare high income people and low income people, high income people have used more of those policies in the tax code um, and fewer visible policies. They've used more non means tested policies um, and very few means tested policies, not surprisingly, although some of them started life um, more low income and did use a means tested policy. But uh, on net, they have used the identical number of policies as people in the lowest income group, um, just a different mix of policy designs. So that was the overall um, message that I came up with, is that we are all beneficiaries.
0: Now, uh, one of the things that a, maybe a casual observer and a casual observer who knows something about uh, partisan politics might assume is that it's the Democrats Uh, who both have famously supported these social policies, that they're the ones who ultimately are getting the benefits. You find something different. So who, in fact, do social policies support when we think about it through the lens of partisanship?
1: You know, they really benefit everyone. Um, And I, I looked at this bipartisanship. And there again, there's actually a similar pattern to what I was just describing where um, Republicans have used somewhat more of the policies in the tax code than Democrats, somewhat more of the non-means-tested policies than and Democrats, a few more of the means-tested policies. But the differences are really quite slight. And uh, overall usage patterns are, are very similar. And then You know, another way that I looked at this, I used another data set that comes from the Bureau of Economic Analysis in the U.S. um, Department of Commerce. And I looked at um, county at, at usage of social policies, the percentage of personal income that comes from federal social policies at both the state level by state and by county around the United States. And uh, and so it's in each of those states and counties, it's the um, average amount of an individual's income, a resident's income that comes from those policies. And here it's looking not at the submerged policies in the tax code, but rather at over 40 policies that are highly visible. And the results were really interesting. Um, I mean, we think of. The Republican Party, especially in recent decades, is having very much been um, running on a platform of saying, let's scale back public policies, particularly social policies. And yet, when you look at the parts of the country that are particularly reliant upon these policies, many of them are what we call the red states um, or parts of those states that are particularly dominated by, that, that elect. Republican officials. And so there again, it's very paradoxical.
0: Yeah. Now, later in the book, you relate some of this evidence to evidence about participation rates in elections, that is voting. Um, One of the things you show is that there's a relationship between the type of social policy one benefits from and the likelihood of voting. So uh, do those who benefit from government in different ways participate at different levels and, and also How does this relate to representation and policymaking?
1: What I found is that there is a participatory tilt um, toward those who use policies that make government's role less clear. So, the the policies in the tax code um, are tilted toward higher income people. The earned income tax code, the earned income tax credit, is quite an exception, being for the working poor. But most of these policies are particularly for the affluent, and those individuals participate at much higher rates in voting and in all kinds of political activity. By contrast. Um, The people who I found to be most aware of government's role in their lives are low-income people who've used more means-tested policies. So policies like food stamps um, and uh, Pell Grants uh, and so on. And these policies, um, people tend to really appreciate them, find them very valuable, very worthwhile, but those individuals are less likely to participate in politics. They're less likely to vote, uh, and to participate in all these other things. So in other words, when it look, when you look at political voice and whose voices are being heard in politics, they are particularly people who are less aware of the role that government has played in their lives.
0: And what is the signal that this sends? So, so the signal specifically to, to legislators, uh, elected officials, uh, when you have, um, uh, nearly everyone as a beneficiary of social policy, uh, but the type of social policy they benefit from different is different, and also their their perception and views of policy uh, made to to help uh, uh, one's uh, life uh, vary somewhat. So maybe you can connect this to the the signaling that this has, and and how policymakers have responded to some of these paradoxes that you found.
1: Yeah, I think this is really key. I mean, to go back to what you'd asked me about early on about the Affordable Care Act, for example, um, which, you know, was was under duress for so long. And, and one of the things that includes is expanded Medicaid. Now it's about one in four Americans at a moment in time who are using Medicaid. And more than that, if you look at, at whether people have ever used Medicaid. But Medicaid beneficiaries um, are much less likely to participate in politics than those who whose health coverage comes from um, employer-provided, tax-exempt, government-subsidized uh, health insurance, for example. And so what that means is that you have lawmakers who get elected who are much more willing to try to um, do away with those policies, in that case to re- to try to repeal the Affordable Care Act, and generally to be less protective of social provision. Um, So, you know, this has been such a a trend over the past several decades that social policies tend to be um, under under duress and and in danger of being cut, particularly those that um, benefit low-income people in particular. Uh, And the participatory tilt uh, really helps to explain that.
0: Yeah. How long can this persist you can You can imagine this in the short term uh, working but but is there anything that we know about whether this 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 can last once someone who, even if they're unaware of the benefits they're getting uh, has um, either those benefits cut or other in their, people in their community's benefits cut um, does How does this continue uh, past sort of a, a short term cut? Uh, what do we know about sort of the, the long term trend on this
1: well, you know, I'm surprised at how long all of this has lasted. <laughs> um, and, you know, when it when it comes to politics, um, things don't happen automatically. I think that the, the groups and the party and the officials who managed to tell um, to who managed to connect the dots effectively for citizens um, and to mobilize people, you um, They're the ones who win the day. And I think that uh, those who are protective of social policies have been having a harder time in doing that. Um, part of this might have to do with, you know, an old paradox that was noticed by scholars way back in the 1960s. And I, I think it comes through in my book. And that is that Americans tend to be if you ask them about specific policies, they're supportive of them. But when you ask them broad questions, philosophical questions about the appropriate size of government and taxes, et cetera, they sound like conservatives. So they can be at one and the same time philosophical conservatives and operational liberals. Um, and I think, you know, that paradox is there. And so that means that those who are trying to mobilize people in politics have to find a way to, to deal with that and to grapple with that.
0: Yeah. And, and to that point, um, ultimately, this matters uh, because when citizens are disconnected from government, it is a threat to effective democracy. Uh with that in mind, what can be done? Um, Can this disconnect be addressed in any kind of uh, organized and and planned and thoughtful way?
1: Yeah. And and before I, you know, answer that, let me first just reinforce your point. I really agree. I mean, I think the ultimate implication of these anti-government attitudes is not only that it threatens social policies um, it's It's been interesting to me that over all these decades, the social policies, with the exception of one, have managed to persevere um, and, and they have been protected. Um, but the bigger concern to me is that government itself, um, democracy itself, um, is endangered. And I think that's really, you know, that we I've been worried about this for a long time, but I actually think that we are. Um, much more in danger of that now. Um, and I think it's because you can have many people, even across the political spectrum, who um, are are very resentful of government. Um, and yet government is what we have in common, what we share that gives us the political capacity to try to um, to deal with conflicts in society and to try to find ways to make headway on the the problems that are facing us of all different types. Um, So what to do about it? So that's the the question you're asking. And I will say that, you know, a few years ago, if I was asked this question, I would have said, we need to provide people with more information. Um, So I had an idea when I wrote the book, The Submerged State, that when people pay their taxes, then afterwards, they should receive a statement that says what, what they got, From government in terms of the dollar amount of different benefits. You know, that's still probably worth doing, but I have less optimism now about the difference it would make. I think that would mostly be influential to people who are already informed. Um, What I think at this juncture we need to do is to really take insight from scholars like Theda Scotchpole and Hari Han, who emphasize the role of organizations at the grassroots level and organizations that are connected up through um, a federated structure to um, to the whole nation. Um, but at that level, I think people can engage in organizations and have um, face-to-face relationships that really make a difference. So if you think about it, in the middle of the 20th century, labor unions were much stronger in the United States than they are today. And they involved a lot more people. And for their members, they made the a role of public policies much clearer. They made it clear to people which policies helped them and which didn't and which elected officials were helping to protect the policies that were in their interest and which were not. Um, The AARP still does this for senior citizens and does so quite effectively. But I think we we need a lot more of that kind of on the ground organizing that can help to make the role of government clear to people in their everyday lives.
0: Yeah. Again, the the book's title, The Government Citizen Disconnect, published this year by Russell Sage Foundation Press. Uh, The author who you've been hearing from is Suzanne Mettler. Suzanne, thank you so much for your time today.
1: Keith, thank you, I've really enjoyed it.